This is Welcome to Blacklisted Remarks. Remarks. I'm Spencer Field, and you're listening. And you're not going to steal my thunder. Are, are you? Do we need to arm wrestle about this? Well, the computer and the microphone are on the table. And taking into account, I just left a workout, and I had a hard time drinking my juice because my hand was shaking. I think you're going to win this. So, welcome to Blacklisted Remarks. My name is Nick Stumphauser. The thunder. <laughs> and with me today is Spencer Field. The clap. And we. Oh wow. That's a that's a good duo. Thank you. The the thunder and the clap. You should see me when I'm in stand up mode. <laughs> what are we talking about today, Spencer? Uh, Mr. Thunder, we are talking about uh, sonic booms. No, uh, we're talking about combating nihilism responsibly. And I think an important part of this conversation is going to be that qualifier responsibly. Well, we are always responsible. Why did you Are you kidding me? We are so unqualified to talk about every topic that we talk about. And yet we just dialogue on these things, which somebody one day might listen to and take seriously. That is one of the most irresponsible things I've heard. So, so what do you think that distinction making this response? So we've talked a lot about, I'm going to take my coat off so I don't wrestle the entire podcast. I appreciate it. So uh, what, what do you think, makes this discussion responsible like how are we going to change it because we've talked about nihilism and free will and all these different things hell we've talked about abortion and suicide so how are we going to be responsible when we're talking about nihilism oh we're not going to be oh okay yeah so i think it's ironic right it just just a little bit okay i think the interesting part about this conversation is in my opinion there are ways to combat or confront nihilism responsibly in the way that an individual approaches the topic and there are ways which somebody can combat nihilism irresponsibly. Our conversation will be totally irresponsible because we're both unqualified to talk about it. So the mechanisms we're going to be talking about are, in our opinion, the most responsible way to combat nihilism. Or one of the more responsible. I think it's hard to, to say the most responsible, but yeah, we're on the same track. So, so why would somebody want to combat nihilism in the first place? So like, what is it that makes it an adversary worth combating? What a very interesting question. So in my opinion, nihilism isn't specifically something which is inherently bad that needs to be fought against. It's not something which has to be crushed. It's not something that we have to vanquish or conquer, Sure. but it is something which has a negative force on many people's life. It has a downward drag, if you will. And while I don't have to fight gravity, except when I'm working out with Katie Michkowski and we're on lap three, then I do have to fight gravity. I do have to learn to accept it. And I can do that responsibly in some ways, or I could do that irresponsibly. I'm currently racking my brain about an irresponsible way to deal with gravity and I haven't come up with one yet. So don't ask me that (laughs) question. When you're looking at this topic and you are tried to touch into how you see nihilism because we've, we've talked about that before in the past. Um, What is it that you see like in the world, the three most irresponsible ways to deal with it? I think the first is suicide. Okay. I think um, the second is intellectual dishonesty. And then the third would be, I don't know if there's a third, I'm just going to start with the, the first two. So the first, I think, would just be suicide. I think suicides are responsible. Um, Why? As because we've talked about on the mental health episode of things, um, what social responsibility is, what obligation is, and I would refer the listeners back to that for my full uh, explanation on on why I believe suicide is is something that ought to be avoided at all costs. Um, 
intellectual dishonesty, I think, is actually the thing that I'm most interested in in this. And that is because nihilism, I think, has a general perception of something that's negative. It's often seen as uh, a depressing, a a dampener on someone's life and, and their outlook on the world. If you're a nihilist, you're probably an unhappy person who just says fuck it all the time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times from the religious side of things, uh, I see, I was just listening to the beginning of a debate yesterday between Matt Delahunty and um, another Christian apologist. And uh, the Christian apologist was saying, if you are an atheist, then you believe that we are just molecules in motion, nothing has any meaning. And therefore, you know, you might as well just go kill yourself. And uh, I think that's a, a very strong level of intellectual dishonesty where it's like they don't even give it a chance. They don't even, they, it's just this assumption that nihilism is the worst thing ever and we just got to go about combating it. So I think the position that I'm going to ad hoc subscribe <laughs> Choose, to yeah. and defend in this podcast, and we'll see where this goes, is that nihilism is actually. Uh, the better worldview, the more positive, mm. the more enlightening, the more joy producing worldview than um, it's often contrasted, maybe um, idea of eternal life sure. or um, divine meaning to someone's life or, you know, cosmic purpose, everything from the astrological signs to I was put on this earth by Jesus to do X, Y, and Z before I die. Well, I can tell you something, Nick. What's that? We are five minutes and 43 seconds in, and we have found a fundamental disagreement already. Shocker. That's actually pretty long. I, I know. I think it's just because I was talking. It might be a record, actually, because yeah. there was little. So just to circle back to that question, to give somebody a clear takeaway from what you just said, if you were to summarize why you think suicide is irresponsible from a nihilistic perspective in a sentence or two, what would you say? Regardless of what happens after you die, while you are alive, as a human being on this earth, you are part of a social fabric in which you owe to other people certain things, and you shirk that responsibility by committing suicide. In as much as responsibility means anything, suicide's not a good idea. Hmm. Okay. I can see where you're coming from. I might disagree with you, but... Uh, that that's not uncommon. Okay. So you said your second reason that you thought nihilism was irresponsible is what? I stopped typing because it made terrible key noises as I did it. So I, I'm not taking notes anymore. I don't, that that's the thing is I don't think nihilism is irresponsible. It was the framing of it as a whole. Yeah, I think the framing of nihilism is often intellectually dishonest. I think you said the reason that it's it's irresponsible is to combat it with intellectual dishonesty. Yes, and to the, like the hide it and yeah, cover it. The irresponsibility, I think, is is to combat it with dishonesty. So it's perceived often as playing with fire. Mm -hmm. If you admit that nihilism is true, the world's just going to fly apart, and, right. and we've lost. We've lost this battle, and we have to keep this the balloon in the air, we have to keep tapping it up into the air and pretending like uh, everything has a divine purpose and you and I are intrinsically, you know, worth X value. And if we, for one second, look at nihilism as somewhat valid, then we're just molecules in motion and why not shoot up heroin, rape people and die? And I think that is the irresponsible way 
to combat nihilism. Is it a reasonable way to combat nihilism? No, I don't think it's reasonable either. Okay. And so when you're making these claims, there is some uh, value or some judgment you're making it based on. So what is responsible or irresponsible, there's some metric which we're using to say like, this is a responsible activity. This is irresponsible. There's a reference point, if you will. Something which some people would say is immutable truth or something along those lines. And when you're saying something which is good or bad, there's some sort of reference point where we're referencing it there. So when you're making these claims or you're purporting these ideas, what is that reference point you're using to determine what is responsible or irresponsible, good or bad? Like most things from a, so I would call myself a nihilist Mm -hmm. and at least n equals one for nihilists who don't think that suicide is a great idea and that hedonism is the answer to nihilism or the cohort of nihilism. I would say that often somebody who's a nihilist and a determinist and a humanist falls back on the idea of well-being as the value system. Sure. So that quickly begs the question why value well-being very quickly and i think to that i would at first say i don't know and then second i would say i don't know that there's a better option out there because i think the only the the alternative of divine command theory of god said so therefore it is just pushes that question one step backward and and you don't really answer it in my opinion so I think the way that I've sort of been approaching nihilism for as long as I have been one is we didn't choose to be born. We didn't choose existence. We can make existence a hell of a lot worse by doing certain things like being a bad, you know, bad person, a non-functional person, a hedonistic person. So while we're here, we might as well do and pursue that which we at least believe to be the best possible way to live. And we should do that because... The alternative is mass suffering. And we think suffering is bad. Well, if anything is bad, suffering is. I disagree with that fundamentally and vehemently, but... Well, that's actually a really important that we that we hash that out then all right let's uh crack some eggs and so, have to make some hash so i would say that to suffer now not not pain i think there's a difference between pain and suffering and i, I think that as the girl scout patch wearing Buddhist <laughs> that i am from what i understand the difference between pain and suffering is resistance and that one can suffer extraordinarily with a small amount of pain or, you know, discomfort in their life by merely working themselves into a lather about it versus transcending it. And if you were to read Facebook posts to understand Buddhism, that's a perfectly legitimate interpretation of a a pretty, like it's true is, is not wrong. So, but, but to go beyond that, to suffer, more so than your own resistance to be dealt a hand by the universe that is the essence of the shittiest possible way to live where you were born the conditions with which you were born the parents to whom you were born 
a life that you're given by by chance can offer you immense amounts of suffering that mere transcendence it just doesn't uh, fix. And so... And why do you think that suffering is bad? I think it's bad only in the frame of what it means to be a human. So I think we often make a mistake when we're reasoning about this is because humans have a great ability to look at things from an external perspective and from many other perspectives, but from the perspective of a sentient homo sapien on planet earth to suffer is bad in as much as to thrive is good. And so I think you've said, I gotta say this back to you and tell me if I am misunderstanding you because either I disagree, which wouldn't be the first time, or I'm misunderstanding. So you would say the reason suffering is bad in the context of being human is that thriving is good and suffering is the opposite of thriving. Well, I mean, that just pushes the question off on the thriving. Which, which is, is why I'm why, confused. Right, why is thriving good? I think it, it also goes back down to the definition of, of what it means to be human, which is to propagate life and to thrive. Is that what the definition of being a human is? Well, I, I guess just to say that's the definition of life is is to propagate itself. It's, you know, we could go into that organic compounds, yada, yada. But the, the purpose, quote unquote, of life itself, if it is to be life, is to reproduce and to thrive. That is the purpose of life in as much as it has purpose. I, yeah, I would say that that is Nick prescribing purpose to a re an object and that that purpose isn't inherently built into it. Um, How so? It, okay. So what, what do you think the, the purpose of life? Now, I don't mean the purpose of a human, human life, life. I mean, just like the purpose of organic life. Organic life. I don't know that there is a specific purpose to it. So I think uh, when I was young, I made this wildly strong, unqualified statement to my parents, which was, I never think the word needs should be used without a qualifier. Like I need X or I need Y. Mm -hmm. I think it should always be, I need oh. X to do A. And there always has to be some context in there. So I think when we're, and, and I've thought about that over the years of that statement that I've made, and I still stand by that the vast majority of the time is you only need X or Y to get A or, or B. It's not an inherent need, if you will. And the reason I look at that is because when I'm looking at the universe around me and the world around me, I don't know that there are inherent needs. I think needs are essentially contexts because we want have a desire or there's an outcome. I say that because I would hold the same or something similar to it to be true about purpose. And that when I look at a tool, let's say a hammer, there is that hammer was created for a purpose. Like the designer of it had a purpose in mind, but just because the designer wanted me to use it for something doesn't mean that's inherently built into the object. Like at the end of the day, it's a piece of wood with a piece of steel on the end of it. And that the existence of it doesn't proclaim a purpose to itself. The purpose is only true within the context of a user or an individual. So when you're saying, Spencer, what is the purpose to life? I would say, there isn't a purpose to life without context, without an individual producing that social construct around it, because the inherent existence of something doesn't mean that it had a purpose. Now, it might have had an intended purpose, but an existence, in my opinion, doesn't lead to an 
actual prescribed purpose. So I think I understand what you're saying. And I want to be, let me see if I can rephrase what I said to better clarify. Okay. The function of life is to promulgate itself. Yeah, we're going to go down the same rabbit hole, which is what is life best at doing to promulgate itself or propagate? Yes. Well, a thing's function is that which it does. I don't know because a hammer does a lot of things. Like I've seen hammer in art. I've seen hammer. No, no. We do a lot of things with a hammer. Sure. But a thing that does, the thing that is doing the doing. Sure. It, it does something based on function. Now, whether it's has agency or not, I don't care. So whether or not it's aware of what it's doing, I'm not concerned with. I'm saying the, the, the reason why that thing is, is based on what it does. So if a rock is rolling down a hill, it does roll down a hill. Is the reason the rock exists to roll down the hill? Because that's what it's doing. No. So I'm saying that, but I see what you're saying. And I think there is a difference. And let me see if I can articulate it. So the rock isn't actually doing anything. It's being acted upon. Sure. Life. Itself, I think that's very important. So I'm going to highlight that and we're yeah. going to come back to it. So, so the rock is being acted upon. Yes. In a not true, but functionally true way. <laughs> life is doing the action so in as much as molecule i'm disregarding molecules in motion here and this is where i'm curious maybe you're trying to go full reductionist here and if that's the case that you know that might explain some things but in as much as life has agency which i mean it pretty much doesn't it's dna getting from point a to point b the way in which it does that is the function so by definition, life is a lot of things, one of which in order for it to be life is that it reproduces. And so in order to, to just bring this full circle, in order to reproduce, it must be in an environment and have a, a, a state of being that doesn't prevent this. I would argue that suffering prevents this, extreme suffering at least. And therefore, any movement across the gradient from suffering to well-being that ensures that the function can be enacted is a movement in the quote-unquote right direction. Well, I think you're wrong there too in that suffering stops reproduction in that maybe extreme debilitating suffering does, but extreme debilitating suffering is relatively rare. And most your garden variety suffering doesn't do that. And I actually think if you were to take a look around the world and you were to look at the world happiness score, which I think has some correlation to that of suffering, and you try to find the places in the world which have the highest population growth, you would find that they're relatively low on the world happiness score. And actually, as you get happier, like look at all of the top 10 happiest countries, they have a pretty low reproduction rate. I have no idea if that's true, so I'm just going to trust you. But I do have a question, and maybe this can, can help jog where I need to go with this. Do you think that suffering is bad? No. And why? So 
This is something which I find difficult to articulate. So this is a great context to do that because I have the next 15 minutes to just process out loud. And that's expected in this connotation, in this context. Um, So when I am looking at something good or bad, I use those words on a very regular basis. And I use them functionally speaking, and they're always within context. So like, if I can't tie my shoes, that's bad, unless I'm in a stand-up sketch, and then that's good, um, because it, it adds to the sketch. Or if I can't find my computer cable, that's bad, unless if I found my computer cable, I was going to leave early and get hit by a car, in case, then in that case, it's good. And so when I use good and bad, I use them all day long, very flippantly on a regular basis. And they have a useful place in life because they're reductionistic terms. But when we're talking about big, big principle ideas, like what we do, or at least we pretend to do in the context of blacklisted remarks, I think that we need to be more careful about how we use the words good and bad and understand that everything good or bad, it has some, um, some metric in which is being compared against. It may not be a horizontal scale. It may not be a, an actual uh, true, like ultimate truth, but there is some sort of reference point which is built into that. And since I don't believe that there's an actually immovable reference point, like when I was a Christian, I would say like the word of God, or maybe not even the word of God, like God himself was this true immovable reference point. And now that I believe there's not an immovable reference point, I think all of those purpose, focus, function, good, bad, suffering, all of it goes out the window because the only true metric, the only thing that I can compare it against is something that I've constructed or something that my society has constructed. And it's a social contract. It's a figment of our imagination. Now, is it super useful? Absolutely. Is it true? Definitely not. And so when we're talking about good or bad purpose, lack of purpose, I think that by doing that, we are inherently calling upon the authority of this, what I'll use, I'll I'll just term as the metric. And since I don't believe the metric exists, I would say this goes back to my whole qualitative truth versus quantitative truth thing, is that I think suffering is qualitatively bad, but it is not quantitatively bad. And because of that, I'm not willing to say that it's bad universally. If I'm going to sure. say it's bad, I'm going to say, given what I want out of life and what I understand about the situation I'm in, then I think this is bad. And that's what that whole idea of resistance and, and Buddhism. So I think you said a very important sentence in there, which is that it is very useful, but not true. Yes. To which I ask, what is it useful for? It is useful for individuals to navigate a world which has no boundaries, and it's useful for creating um, a structure with which multiple individuals relate to one another. And why would that be worthwhile? Because when I am looking at the world, my qualitative truth, my non-universal truth, the metric that I have given it is that that is what I want out of what I want to have a world which aligns to these set of principles that I have chosen because of my cultural context, my genetics. There's a really interesting podcast to listen to about how 30% of your political beliefs are determined by your genetics. Um, And I, so the reason I would say that is, is true is because in my qualitative standpoint, that is what I have determined is true. It is a lowercase t truth. And what percentage would you give to the usefulness factor of 
living and living a life full of well-being? So there's two answers to that. The first one is what have what level of value have I placed on that as an individual and what level of value has my society placed on that? And then what level is actually true? So let's go in reverse order. What level is actual, actually true? There's no value. So none. And it's equally as valuable as living an entire life suffering because there's no universal metric to compare it against. Now, what is my society determined? Well, my society has determined that I should live a life in my, you know, culture in my current context, a life of happiness and joy and friendship and partnership and love and connection, maybe with a little bit of struggle thrown in there for some good rants. But mostly it should be this kind of like happy-go-lucky life um, with with the ability to work hard and get what you want, but definitely not inherent suffering. What have I chosen in my life? I've essentially chosen in my life that my baseline, how I live my baseline day is pretty important to me. But my baseline, I try my very best to not have fundamentally altered by external happenings. So suffering, like when I'm having a really bad day, you know, I get hit in my car, my computer doesn't work, I'm late to a meeting, blah, 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 blah. At the end of the day, my fundamental experience of life doesn't change that much. And so I don't think it's not something that I want suffering. Like I don't want to go outside and find that I have another flat tire like I did last week. That's not what I want to do. But I don't know that it is inherently bad within my rule set that I have essentially pulled out of thin air. So would you reframe your life tomorrow instead of what you're doing right now, which is to uh, to pursue as much socially constructed well-being as you can to pursuing as much suffering as you can? Would you do that tomorrow? I would not do that tomorrow. And why not? Because the rule set which I've created for myself or which has been foisted upon me or some combination of the two of them says that is not good and that's not what I want. Good. So I'm glad I asked that question because I think that you are completely wrong and that you are incorrect. I think that you are lying to yourself. Okay, great. This will be a good conversation. So the idea that it's as malleable as I think you are portraying it to be, I think falls apart under its own reasoning. Okay. Now I'm the first person to reject the idea of, uh, you know, universal objective truth in the religious sense of the word or, or the phrase. But from a Darwinian standpoint, I think you are ignoring the power of evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. How so? Because I think that suffering is a, a real impediment to living a life that allows you to produce more life. And I would argue that not, not just... Editor's notes, Spencer shaking his head right yeah. now. So it, it's, that's not to say that in, in as much as suffering is the opposite of well-being, I don't mean struggle. I don't mean pain. I don't mean heartbreak. I don't mean computer breaking or flat tire. I mean, abject suffering versus well-being. So poor health, poor cognition, 
poor genetics, poor family structure, poor economy, these things reduce the likelihood of you reproducing and successfully carrying on life. So wrong. So Why? wrong. Okay. So first, you just framed everything within the context of evolutionary biology. My claim is that that is a made up, like that is a uh, quantitatively true framing. Like evolutionary biology does exist. It does have a set of rule structures in it. And if you interpret good or bad within those rule structures, then you have an outcome. My claim is that we shouldn't accept those rule structures because they're not inherently built into the fabric of the universe, if you will. And so by using those rule structures, we're saying, okay, this is good or bad, responsible, irresponsible within this framework, within this construct. They're relevant and applicable they to, are totally to relevant. human life. Yeah, they are, there are lots of things which are relevant and applicable to human life. But we have to, if we're going to have this conversation, let's first do this without a construct and then say, okay, given that we've beat this horse, this dead horse, now let's apply a construct and have a conversation. But we need to start with zero and then go from zero to one. So that's my first fundamental disagreement. Let me see if we agree on this real okay. quick. Because I, I, I don't believe that this idea of good or bad or suffering or well-being matters outside the context of planet Earth. Sure. So on this pale blue dot, everything we're talking about matters. But I, I would say I'm a nihilist in reference to... I'd say it doesn't matter at all, but sure. Okay. So would you... But we agree about the universe, you know, outside this atmosphere. Uh, all of it doesn't matter inside and outside the atmosphere. Okay. So you and I both And agree everybody about... in the ISS is, is throwing up right now <laughs> because you just said their life didn't matter. So, so we agree about outside this atmosphere. Now, I think what we disagree about is within this atmosphere. So, sure. So tell me why suffering doesn't matter within this atmosphere. Okay. We've had this conversation at a past podcast, so let's, let's, we won't rehash the entire podcast that we had. When we're, this is the idea of big M meaning versus small M meaning. Like when heat death happens, was there actual meaning to it? So as a former Protestant, the answer to that question was an unequivocal yes. Like once heat death happens, like then the meaning really kicks in actually. And that's maybe the meaning is even more vibrant after heat death happens or you know god comes back and brings a massive cube onto the planet like a big boar and takes over the world um maybe that's when it really kicks in but with under that construct what happens after heat death big m meaning does it is does it exist absolutely within my current understanding of the world which is flawed i will put on the table what i believe is flawed about the universe i don't know how it's flawed but i i fundamentally believe that there's something i don't know and i that i'm not right about this in some way is that there is no big M meaning and that there are only small M meanings and that the small M meanings, there's like Spencer's little meaning of like, I wanted to get out of the house today by seven o'clock and I got out at 7.15 and so that was bad, but that was kind of a little M meaning, but it did have meaning to me, it did impact me versus like, I wanted to, you know, hypothetically, I want to date and marry this person, but they don't want to date and marry me. Like maybe that's a bigger M meaning or versus like, maybe I have a kid and my kid dies. Like that's closer. Like that M is a couple of font points larger, but there's no capital M meanings. And so when we're talking about inside of our atmosphere, there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of small M meanings, but there's no big M meanings like post heat death meanings. Sure. And I don't disagree with that, but I guess what I'm saying is, I think you are 
advocating for a relativistic view of suffering and well-being. Yes. And I'm advocating against that both within this atmosphere, both here on planet Earth. And I'm saying that the the objective truth per se of this gradient of suffering and well-being is instantiated by the definition of life. And and the definition of life isn't inherent within it. So why do you think that suffering doesn't stop us? Before I answer that question, I want to go back to my emphatic you're wrong statement and go down the other path that I that was there because I said there was two reasons. So that's the first one. Everything you're saying is within the within a construct of some sort. I'm arguing an a construct approach to this. And then we'll talk about constructs after that. The second reason I think you're wrong is you make this claim that the purpose of life is to reproduce. If something gets in that way, then it's bad. Would you say that that's a reductionistic approach to what you're saying, but a relatively acceptable reason and suffering is gets in the way of reproducing the suffering is bad. So our metric is number of kiddos. Yes, I think so. Okay. I won't make you commit to that. I'm not going to shackle you to that. So if you want to change that later, that's fine. So in that case, and I'm sure you'd say there's there's other other factors which go into reproduction as well. Suffering is just one one of a plethora. But if we were to list in the you in the uh, in a chart somewhere the areas of the world or the countries which had the highest amount of reproduction, and we stack that up against how happy people say that they are, I would think we'd have a pretty low correlation because I think we both agree that as a country moves from being a third world country to a second to a first world country, suffering decreases. Like infant mortality goes down, people starving in the streets go down, the people without health care go down, the ability to not find a job or support yourself goes down. We have something more like existential sufferings that pop up, but like the, the core sufferings we talk about, like my kids bleeding to death and there's nothing I can do type sufferings go down. Yeah. And when you take in the uh, population growth or the birth rate of that as a country becomes more and more gentrified or moves further and further down the economic development path, which we could say correlates and has some causational relationship to suffering, we see the birth rate go down and down and down and down and down. So if your metric was true that suffering impedes birth rate, then we would expect to see low suffering countries have a high birth rate and um, high suffering countries have a low birth rate. But in fact, it's not universal, but it's pretty close to the opposite. If you look at where we're having explosive growth, Africa, India, and the areas surrounding those, just crazy explosive growth in the population, like six kids per, per, per adult. So I think that, I mean, that pretty much is like a direct refutation. So then my follow-up question is why so so obviously if i shackled you to the basement starved you and beat you every day and just just inflicted as much suffering upon you as i could i think it's pretty safe to assume you would not desire that oh definitely not and i also would not desire that and i think we also both agree that a hedonistic lifestyle would would burn out pretty quickly and we might not get that much satisfaction satisfaction you know i actually think 
that you're undercutting hedonism a little bit? A little bit. But I think you and I both are, are pretty aware that if, if every single desire that we had was fulfilled immediately, um, maybe we'll just say physical desire as opposed to emotional or spiritual desire. Sure. That, it, which is the, the typical model of hedonism, that that also would not be our ideal life. All so, right. I'm going to actually push back on that one a little bit. And you're, I'm going to give you the authority to clap your hands and say new podcast topic. We're going to end this conversation and go back to your point because okay. th this could open up an entire can of worms that we may not want to go down there. Sure. I would argue that hedonism is actually one of the most responsible ways to live when hedonism is understand in its totality and that it's not about like, I want your candy bar and I'm going to rip the candy bar out of your hand because I want the candy bar, but rather it's what Nick's not going to have a candy bar. I want your raw steak and I want to rip this raw steak out of your hand. Yeah. And um, it's by the way, the whole Nick eating raw steak is now a trope in my head yes. um, and it will forever be a trope. But when I do something, I was talking to somebody about this the other day that I'm sure you've heard from people. I don't have time. I don't have time. Right. You do have time. It's just not a high enough priority. Like you yeah. could have showed up to that thing, but you didn't because it wasn't a high enough priority or some unforeseen circumstance happened. Like the fact that you turn that in past the deadline means you were doing something else, most likely, unless some sort of you know emergency happened. And that means you prioritize that thing over this. So when you tell me that Fortnite isn't your priority and that working is your priority, but the reason you didn't turn it in is because you were on Fortnite until three o'clock in the morning and I saw it on Twitch, then I know what your true priorities are. And you may not even believe them yourself. Like you may believe work is more important, but your your the way you express that is a truer expression of your priorities. Now, I also think that as a human, and I'm still playing with this idea, so I'm not going to fully commit to it, that we actually do everything that we want to do. So like I was working out this morning. I walked into what I thought was going to be a yoga class, and then I got my ass thoroughly and completely handed to me. And it should have been a cue that everybody walked in with their shoes on and nobody had yoga mats out, but I didn't, I didn't think about that. And I had also forgotten how terrible burpees are. Um, but as I'm doing that, I don't know that it was inherent suffering. And I don't know that when I'm, I'm looking through that context that it's something that I need to be fighting against. So I think tradition, so I could be wrong, but I think traditionally what you're referring to isn't hedonism. From what I understand, hedonism is the, the gratification of all superficial physical desires. I, so I think the actual definition of hedonism, and I'm pretty sure a quick Google search would actually answer this question. Cue the millennials reaching for their phones. Editor's note. Um, I think that hedonism is popularly understood that way, but a truer definition of hedonism, like a non-Wikipedia definition of hedonism, is a fulfillment, a, a life based on fulfilling desires, which are both, which are the totality of desires, not just, I want that candy bar. So we have the pursuit of pleasure, sensual self-indulgence, the ethical theory that pleasure in the sense of satisfaction of desires is the highest good and proper aim of human life. And where do we see that definition from? That is just from the dictionary. Okay, so I think that that is a pretty pretty workable, like 10th grade definition of hedonism. But I think that if we actually dive into hedonism as a whole, that it certainly has that context of chasing what I often call low carb pleasures. Like I want this thing now, give that to me that thing now. But I think that 
a truer definition of hedonism or just a different definition or understanding of hedonism is going after the things that I actually want, understanding that I am a creature of conflicting desires. Like, do you not want to do another burpee? But I also don't want to be embarrassed in front of everybody else. I want to feel like I succeeded and I want to strengthen my body. So I'm going to do another burpee. So he, I feel like that doesn't work in terms of the idea of sacrifice. So if it does, definitely does. Well, I, I don't think traditionally. So let me propose this to you instead. So I think what uh, Ayn Rand has a concept of, um, of selfishness that she puts forth in her framework of objectivism. And that is that a human being acting in their own best interest is the best type of human being for everybody else too. Because if they act in their own best interest, they're going to tend toward doing things that benefit everybody. And it sounds to me like that is a similar sort of all-encompassing idea where if I fulfill my emotional desires, my sure. physical desires, my uh, intellectual desires, that I will, I will reach a point of self-actualization as a person that is better than I was prior to that. So it sounds because because when I'm when I'm leaning toward here is, is a separate question that I haven't yet asked yet, but I do want to lay this framework or this foundation because I, I agree it's important. And that is that if hedonism is a responsible res, responsible combatant or perhaps fulfillment of nihilism, that to respond to nihilism intelligently and responsibly is to be a hedonist, in that you you fulfill all of your desires, not just physical desires, but also emotional, intellectual, spiritual desires. That my, then my question is, what is it inside of us that pursues the fulfillment of desires and flees from suffering? What is that, that, that pushes us from A to B? I don't know. It's a that, I think it's a them. I don't know that it, you could say like, it's this one thing um, because I think that the brain, like our brains are brains of constant contradictions and it's never black and white. It's always percentages. No, no. Let me, let me dumb it down even more because right. this is really what I'm trying to get at. Like if you have a mouse in a cage and on one side you have like uh, an electric fence and the other side you have like a bowl of tasty rat chow. Sure. The, the rat is not going to throw itself against the electric fence and shock itself and induce pain. It's yeah. going to pursue the chow. Sure. Why do we do the same thing? Whether or not it's exercise or a donut mm -hmm. and, you know, placing our hand on a hot stove or, uh, you know, pursuing the deaths of our loved ones. Mm -hmm. Like why are we pursuing well-being and pleasure and desires and, and fleeing from pain? Because I think that's, I think it is intellectually dishonest to say, ah, that's just how I was raised. Ah, it's just how, you know, American culture said, like, that's, I, I will not move on that part, that there is something inside of all of us um, in life itself that pursues at some level, quote unquote, well-being, good, whatever it is, however, you know, non-theological and universal it might be, and flees from that suffering. Duh, that was just how I was raised. Duh, that's just what American <laughs> culture says. So I would say that you're almost making this claim to the ineffable. Like there is this thing about humans which moves towards good stuff and away from bad stuff in their understanding of good and bad stuff. That's it, a claim about life. Well, I would – so 
you're making that claim, which I think is a, a, a probably a pretty reasonable response to how we see reality. Like I would, I wouldn't say like, yeah, but one out of 10 mice is going to go fling itself against the electric fence. And that proves I'm not going to yeah. make that claim. Like that's a legitimate response to a, your, your, looking at reality you're interpreting it within your context and then you're expressing your understanding of it and i would say your understanding of what i also see about reality is true now i think in that processing you're prescribing meaning that isn't there here's what i mean by that when we're so i also think that there's a difference between a rock rolling down a hill an amoeba eating another amoeba i don't even know if amoebas eat one another a, a mouse running against an electric plate and a human deciding to jump off the raft so his wife and children can stay on it um are like three or four totally different conversations to be had there but within the, so with all those caveats on the table now that i've made you sign all sorts of paperwork um i would say that fundamentally the reason that humans do that is because of all of those things that you've mentioned and more. So how our culture raises, how our family raises, how I'm genetically pre predisposed, how my epigenetics are being expressed, how I am hormonally, because we all, I think you and I both agree, if we agree on one thing about life, it's that humans really don't have free will. And that if I chose to run myself against the electric plate, it's because it wasn't my choice at the end of the day. It was whatever was happening in my brain chemically electrically physically that made me run against that and so i would say that as a pretty strong materialist from at least a uh, quality or quantitative standpoint that it was all of those things and then some that made me chase pleasure over pain and that list I can go through, I can make up a bunch of things to put on that list, but I don't know that there's something like inherently built into me other than something which is on that list. So let me phrase it this way. Okay. If you have life. Sure. And you were to divide all of life's decisions, quote unquote, disregarding the fact that decisions are an illusion into two baskets. Yes. And not label the baskets yet. Just categorize them by similarity. Sure. And we, we won't put a label on good or bad, suffering, well-being just yet. You would find that they fell into two types of decisions. Things that pursue, uh, uh, decisions that pursue one type of experience and decisions that pursue another type of experience. We're not going to label the type of experience yet. We're, these are just in two laundry baskets. I got baskets. it. I got it. Yep. Now. Could we make them buckets, please? Laundry <laughs> baskets have holes and things. Sure. Experiences need to be contained. They're liquids. They're, all right. So we have two buckets describing the types of experience that all of life yep. has. And there's no holes in these buckets, right? No, no Okay. Holes. Got it. Now we are going to adjust for. Inflation. No, we're okay. going to adjust for uh, culture. Okay. We're going to adjust for what, what other things? Do you genetics? Say? No, I'm not, oh. I'm not adjusting for genetics. Yet. Okay. If we adjust for culture and there's genetics, and then what was the other ones that you said? Maybe environment, but I feel like environment is kind of culture. Okay. Sure. So if I remove culture. So let's just go nature and nurture. Nature so and nurture. Remove nurture yeah. and all of it. I think if you remove nurture you skim off maybe one-tenth of one percent of all of the decisions that fall into these two Editor's note, Spencer's making a loud noise. Yep, I think they heard it. Oh, did you? Oh, sorry, guys. <laughs> and 
what's left is two buckets and however the fuck you want to categorize them the pursuit of one to the other is mediated by something inside of life itself and my argument is that that is fundamental to what it means to be life by definition so you're almost a Taoist at this point I don't even know what that means. Okay, so Taoism, and we're going to have to wrap this one up here pretty quick. Um, Taoism, so, uh, is a a religion often found in Asiatic countries, mostly in, like, Japan. And the, the hyper-reductionistic way to see Taoism is that there is a way to live life. It's called the way, or in whatever language it is, it's called the Tao. So the Tao is the way to live life. And the better you align your life with the Tao, and you can, the Tao is kind of, has some like concepts to it, but it's not like here's a list of what the Tao is explicitly. The better your life will be, and the pursuit of your life is to align yourself with the way. And so you would say like the way is that thing that is built into humans and that what it means to understand life well is to understand what it is that thing is that built into humans and then align your life or at least align your thinking with said thing no okay no i'm saying that well we're we're kind of on two different blocks then i'm nick how's the weather <laughs> over there i'm saying the thing that actually does the deciding not not you ought to align your life according to this thing that thing that decision making mechanism making mechanism is fundamental to what it means to be life itself now i don't i don't really care whether or not you align yourself with it consciously whether or not you pursue it whether or not you try and tap into it i'm saying it's working regardless of whether or not you're conscious of it it's sorting your decisions your pursuits your yes. actions yes. into two buckets and that mechanism is so dramatically unrelated to just nurture that I think to reduce it to that is intellectually dishonest. But but let's bring it let's bring right, it full, full circle. Full circle. So we have to. I'm twitching with everyone. Just So we are. That's fine. Make fun of the guy who actually has Tourette's on the podcast. That's fine. That's yeah. Fine. Um. So we are trying to answer the question: What is the most responsible way? To, I don't even like the word combat. Perhaps respond. I think that the, to, this question we phrased was respond nihilism. Yeah, oh no, it definitely was combat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe respond to what I think you and I both agree is the truth of nihilism. And it sounds like the one thing that we might be able to loosely agree on is this general concept of hedonism as more than physical desires <laughs> that's what you've gotten out of this this podcast folks. i think so but but the the thing that i find most interesting is i have not disagreed with you this hard since you brought up the concept of two plus two what is it oh i found a mathematician who said he'd sit down with us and explain exactly how that works we'll have a, a special episode of blacklist remarks where we describe this he said we need to at least understand calc three to to get to get along oh with boy it. i got a two on the ap calc test, so. <laughs> um i didn't take ap calc so but I, I do think that's really interesting but i i, I like this concept of of hedonism as this sort of holistic approach to what it means to be a person and that that that's actually a really good way to not only live a better life as vapid as better means 
but to promote the well-being of those around you as vapid as well-being means. <laughs> so at the conclusion of this podcast, which we didn't have any choice in making because free will doesn't exist and won't change your life at all because not that it could because free will doesn't exist. Uh, how do we how do we sign <laughs> off, Spencer? We're sorry. Uh, yeah, I guess. We, we, we wasted your time. I, okay, the one comment I would make here, um, and I'm glad you really didn't pull this on me because we didn't have time to deal with it. Is then like, what do you do with the person who like thinks a good life is stabbing people? Like, what do you do with them in society? Honestly, is, is, is I didn't it valid? Even, I didn't even that, think to get there. That's a pretty good question. Um, like, what do you do with that? Can you person? answer that in a sentence? No, that's okay. why I'm glad you didn't answer okay. it. <laughs> you shoot them is the answer. <laughs> Um, no, you don't. I'm a bad Buddhist. See, I told you. I said, shoot someone. Yeah. Um, okay. So I would say that when you're looking at this, at least from my side of the microphone, that you listener, I mean, Russian bot, it <laughs> you should be thinking about this in your understanding of the world and understand that the way you're going to perceive this is totally different than anybody else. And throw in a dash of Taoism is in that understanding how you actually perceive the world and how you respond to that perception is a valuable thing to grow to understand and maybe shift over time but that what is responsible i think nick and i can both agree on this one is that growing to understand how you see the world around you is the first step to making a responsible decision and it probably grows from that but you need to have some base or understanding to to, to articulate off of before you go anywhere else. Yes and no. Okay, well, we don't have time for that conversation. Well, I would say that the unexamined life is far easier lived. So if you're going to examine it, just, again, just be prepared just, just to again. open the can of worms. So, But they're gummy worms. It's okay. It's all right. Yeah, some of them are cyanide. You've been listening to Black Listed Remarks. I'm Spencer Field, the clap. I'm next on Pause of the Thunder. Signing off.